You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I want to tell you a little bit about this week's sponsor, Squarespace. You have an idea. That idea could be a passion project, a place to showcase your work, a place to sell products, a podcast. I have a podcast that's not this podcast, and I host it with Squarespace. Whatever it is, Squarespace has the right templates, the ability to customize them, and 24-7 award-winning customer support there to help you turn your idea into a reality. So I want you to go to squarespace.com slash longform for a free trial. When you're ready to launch, use the offer code longform. You'll save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Thanks, Squarespace. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I am a co-host of the Longform Podcast, Evan Ratliff. And I'm here with Aaron Lammer, one of my fellow co-hosts, and Max Linsky. I'm wearing two hats in this episode because I was also the sound recordist. Yes, sound recorder, engineer. <laughs> sound recordist? Recordist, is that what they call it? <laughs> yes. That, t- that makes me think you're not a professional recordist. I hope the sound yeah. is okay. Aaron has a long history in uh, sound recordistry. Uh, I will set the scene for this uh, episode since Evan was in the in the frame, so he couldn't have possibly seen the picture. Uh, very high up in the Random House building. Uh, a audience full of Random House employees. Uh, who who did you speak to? I spoke to Tanahasi Coates, who uh, some of you may know has been on this podcast before four times. Um, and it wasn't just Tanahasi this time; it was actually Tanahasi together with his editor Chris Jackson at uh, One World, which is a division of Random House. And I wanted to talk to him about the writer editor relationship. Also, as it happens, Tanahasi has a novel coming out. It's called The Water Dancer. Uh, he's actually been working on it for a very long time with Chris Jackson. So we talked about how that came about. We talked about fiction versus nonfiction. We talked about being in the position that Tanahasi is in, given the success of his other books, and now doing something completely different. And uh, I thought it was a great conversation. What did you think, Eric? I thought you it was there? great too. And you know, I'll I'll admit 
that uh, as we as we rose up in the elevator, I thought, oh, maybe this is the uh, connection will be tenuous because he's coming out with this uh, uh, his first novel. But uh, actually, it turns out that this novel has its roots in nonfiction and has a lot of connection to, to his other writing. So uh, I thought it was great. And I should say that Ta-Nehisi is about to be on a monster tour of the United States, so you can go see him. He's being interviewed by all kinds of incredible people all over the country, uh, starting at the King's Theater in Brooklyn with Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's also been on this podcast. Uh, so we'll put a link in the show notes. You can check that out. You know, if you're doing a, a tour of any kind, um, one important thing is to drum up an audience, not just once, but week after week when the tour comes to various cities. No better way to do that than with an email newsletter from MailChimp. They make it so easy to keep in touch with the people who are fans of your work. You don't know if someone's going to be a fan. You know, when you have when you tape that first episode, you don't know if someone's going to be a five-episode kind of fan, as Evan is a fan of Ta-Nehisi Coates. <laughs> so uh, sign up for MailChimp today. They bring you this show and tons of other good stuff, like the uh, like that Decatur Book Festival that you were at there. Oh, yeah. Um, shouts to that. It's over now, but we're still talking. About I had a great time. <laughs> well, I hope this uh, conversation with Tanahasi is never over. I want it to be like episode six, seven, eight, nine. We're just gonna keep it going. Uh, here's Evan with Tanahasi Coates and Chris Jackson. Tanahasi, Chris. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Tanasi, this is your fifth time back to the podcast. Every time you come back, I have to mark time, <laughs> how many times you've been here. And uh, I, I started with a, a kind of list of questions that really focused on transitioning from nonfiction to fiction and what that was like. And then I looked at your Instagram and you posted an email from Chris mm. from, I believe, 2009, mm. where you're saying, paraphrasing here, I get what you're saying, <laughs> it's a hard thing to do, but I'll get this voice. Mm. I will figure out this voice, this Civil War slavery era mm. voice, and I promise you it's gonna be different than all those other books, which kind of blew up my idea that you had written enough nonfiction and then decided you wanted to do something different. No. So because of that, I want to just kind of start at the genesis of your relationship. So first of all, how did you first come together as editor and writer? How did you literally meet? I had an agent who's still my agent, and she suggested that I write a book. She had been referred to me by somebody else. And I was like in my mid-20s at the time. And I Is this pre or post? Leaving Time Magazine or getting laid pre, off from Time Magazine. Yeah, it's pre, pre all of that. It's actually okay. you weren't well, even at Time Magazine. I wasn't even at Time uh, Magazine. Okay, okay. I was like, uh, you were at the Village Voice. I was at the Village Voice. Yeah. And um, my agent was like, you should write a book. And I had no context for what that meant, but okay, someone who clearly is in the business says I should do it. I must should do it. Just about anything. There was no specific. No, nah, there was no. It wasn't. It was just write a book. <laughs> That's write a great a idea. And so I, you know, I came with this pitch, and the pitch was um, to write. You know, uh, this is so embarrassing. See all this stuff like that. Chris is rejected, right? Um, <laughs> at the time, I was really mad, but now I'm embarrassed by them, and so I can't actually repeat that I actually pitched them. But anyway, um, for everyone's edification, um, I pitched this narrative history of hip hop, sort of like a, like a Peter Garonic sort of thing I wanted to do, and Chris was like, no. <laughs> and I hadn't even met him. I got rejected before I even met him. Right. He's just like, no, that's right. not. There's enough people working in this space, and you're not going to do anything that's going to, which I probably wouldn't have. And so then, you know, 
Gloria, my agent, said, you know, you should sit down and talk to this guy. I'm really high on him. You know, I know he just rejected you, but you should talk to him. And he came over uh, to this little restaurant across from the Village Voice, and we had lunch. And we started talking about this idea of writing about my dad. And he said, well, I think that's something. I think that's a book. And that became the beautiful struggle. And after the beautiful struggle was done, Chris said to me, you know, this voice, like you really, I think you should try fiction. Like this voice, it really feels like, you know, you could actually do pretty good with some fiction. And so I went and, you know, tried to mess around with that and see what I might write about. And that was the genesis of that note I sent to him. And what's not in that note, because I didn't want to embarrass him, <laughs> was all the shit he talked about other people's books who had written about slavery. No. So, no. so disrespectful, but I, I didn't want to, I didn't want to. I don't believe this. You know, I didn't want to put him out there. Right. So I didn't, I didn't put that. But I mean, no, but it really, the, the note was about, listen, and he's all, and the thing I, I think um, I really enjoy about Chris, and um, like I've told him he can't die, like nothing bad can ever happen to him. You know, for he can't suffer. benefit, I can't Right, die. right, I, I, yeah, you. exactly, exactly. It's nice to have a person like not, that not, not for his child's benefit, but for mine. <laughs> but part of it is, it's so hard to get people to, to really take you seriously. There are people who, if you have a, you know, a significant profile, they get overwhelmed by the name. There are other people who, if you don't, they just kind of don't care. And I guess I've seen like both ends of that now. And the thing I can say about Chris is Chris has always been Chris. You know, Chris from The Beautiful Struggle is, you know, Chris in uh, Between the World and Me with AIDS. But always up to this, there's always this really serious, hard skepticism, but also a kind of generosity. You know, the notes are always like, hey, this is great. You're really on to something. And here's all the things like that could go wrong. You know, but you need that. You need, you know, people to talk to you like that if you're going to, you know, have any sort of success. So let's go back one beat to what you heard in that voice. I mean, to the best that you can articulate it in The Beautiful Struggle, what, what did you hear in that memoir writing that led you to think, oh, fiction? Right. I mean, the thing about The Beautiful Struggle is that it was a coming-of-age memoir written by someone no one had heard of. And no one could pronounce his name. <laughs> and he managed to turn it into this huge feeling epic, you know? Like he, we have a map in the front of that book of West Baltimore, right? But it changes West Baltimore into this kind of mythic landscape. And that's kind of how he wrote the book. So that between the sort of style he used, it was a very kind of stylized voice, the way he invented language to describe things, um, and the way he created out of like the most commonplace events in some ways, he created something that felt large and epic. I felt like he could transition that to fiction. And a lot of the people who responded to the book, and it was a book, again, that was published by an unknown writer. It's a sort of small memoir. The people who read it, though, of whom there were not that many <laughs> initially, were really overwhelmed by it. And it was people like, you know, Walter Mosley comparing him to James Joyce or, you know, Michael Chabon, just who we had no reason to believe would even read the book, read it and unsolicited sent us his kind of notes about the way it transported him. And so there was a, a sense that in that voice, and of course, Tanasi is a great journalist, a great essayist, but I felt like it was something that could also work to create a fictional world. Like he had that sense of imaginative language, but also the way he could transform reality, you know, through that language. And were there alternate worlds floated that you would potentially write about between the two of you? Or were you focused on this period? I mean, you've been obsessed with the Civil War for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was always slavery, but there were different versions of what the, what the actual story was going to be, I think, changed a lot. But I think what Chris just said, like listening to him talk, it really 
it feels like it's been a long time since the beautiful struggle, but in that sense, it does really feel like the continuation of what was happening in that book, in this book. Because I think in that book, you know, I was taking something real, but I was not fictionalizing it in the sense of making up events. I was fictionalizing it in the sense of how those events, like the camera, you know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. what the references were and, and, and that sort of thing. And one of the big challenges with this, you know, from Jump, and this is what, you know, I think Chris was saying in, in his note, how do you make slavery new? Like, how do you, like, I mean, it's a well-trod territory. You know, how, how do you, and by new, I mean, how do you imagine it in such a way that people feel like, I haven't encountered this before, you know? And so much of that was actually quite the challenge of the beautiful struggle, too. You know, it's a very similar thing, although in this case, you know, it was on a different level. I think that's something that's interesting, and it's kind of continuous with the fiction and the nonfiction with ta is, you know, Toni Morrison has this famous line about fiction supposed to make the strange familiar and the familiar strange. And I think mm -hmm. that's something that mm -hmm. he does with his journalism, too. He'll take a subject like reparations or like the Civil War, which are things that people feel like they know and they understand, and he makes them strange again just through the selection of facts and stories that he uses to kind of, you know, get us into those worlds and the language he uses to describe it. Like, there is this element of poetry and imagination just in word selection and idiom. And I think that's the kind of thing that works both with fiction, I mean with nonfiction, but really can fully like find itself in fiction. And when you first started, this was before his Civil War obsession really began. Mm. I think in some ways that's what deepened the novel mm -hmm. over the long course of time that you were working on it. And we had a uh, book. <laughs> you got, you'll know this. <laughs> After our, after so after Beautiful Struggle comes out, right? I start like blogging about the Civil War and everything. Yeah. And Chris, is this, is this publicly known? Am I gonna get? This no, not, just this, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> Gina, you know, oh, Gina might not have heard this. So I, yeah, I says, hey, you know, you should you should write a book of essays about the Civil War, right? This is after he told me, so it's kind of his fault. After he told me, I should write fiction. Uh, and I said, okay, cool. You know what I mean? So I, I signed this book deal to write a book of essays about the Civil War. What I did not realize had basically happened was all of the creative energy that I was putting into the Civil War stuff actually had started to go there. And so I would sit down and try to do this, and I really didn't. I was like, I have nothing right now. Like, I actually don't. I don't have eight essays to write about the Civil War. You so did I, one long one for the Atlantic. I did yeah, exactly. one long one. one. That's how I got the contract. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, had, we had one in the bag to start with. Right, so that's how I got the contract. We had a, we had a start. <laughs> I called Chris and I said, can we have lunch? He said, sure. And I said, I don't have this book. And I'm not going to have this book. And, but I have fiction. And you should publish this fiction. And he looked and I could tell he was kind of blowing his top. <laughs> but he didn't really blow his top. Like what he was like was, okay, how can we make this work? You know, um, and but at the same time, it was clear it was a huge problem because I think people were asking him about the Civil War book because, you know, like other things would happen. Like it was Atlantic journalism happening and this guy's part. So maybe he's going to have a book, right? And, and he already sold a book, indeed. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I actually <laughs> said, but it was, in fact, a book right? it was that was supposed to be happening, yes. So I don't have it. But what actually happened, fortunately, fortunately, was you got the idea for Between the World and Me. And that became the Civil War book. And this is the fiction that I wanted him to publish way back in 2014. This and book right here. What state was it in? 
I'm not good. <laughs> not good. Not good. It's good it wasn't published in 2004. Agree? Chris, oh, you yeah. Agree? No, it wasn't good. <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, it had not elements good. that were good. And some of which endured into right. the Water Dancer. But really, very different book. Very different book. Hey, I'm going to pause things here for a quick word from this week's sponsor, Vistaprint. The importance of feeling professional, poshed, and prepared when it counts cannot be underestimated, and nothing is going to make you feel prepared like having a business card in your pocket from Vistaprint. It's the first step to making something happen for your business. You can get whatever style, finish, shape, or paper you like and get free shipping. You get to pick out the fonts, the design. You can create something as unique and compelling as your business, and you can feel good about it, knowing that Vistaprint only uses carefully selected inks and responsibly sourced paper stocks. Your satisfaction is 100% guaranteed or your money back. Vistaprint wants you to be able to own the now in any situation, which is why our listeners get free shipping on all business cards, any style, any quantity, Go to vistaprint.com, enter the promo code LONGFORM for free shipping on all business cards. It's a limited time offer. Own the now at vistaprint.com, promo code LONGFORM. When you support these great sponsors like Vistaprint, you support this show, and you got a great business card. Everybody wins. Also presenting the show this week, it's Squarespace. Turn your dream into a reality with Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easier than ever to launch your passion project. Now, I want to be clear here. This could be anything. I can't think of a single thing that you would want to put on the internet that would not fit pretty nicely into a Squarespace website. It could be a showcase for your work, a place to publish content, sell products, maybe a website for your podcast with beautiful templates created by world-class designers and the ability to customize them with a few clicks. You can make a beautiful website that is all your own. And if you decide you want to sell something later, they've got you covered. You might think, ah, oh, what am I going to sell? But you know, you got a podcast, then you want to sell t-shirts like the limited edition long form podcast t-shirts, which are so limited edition that they're no longer available. Anyway, They've got the analytics to help you understand your audience. It's optimized for mobile right out of the box. You don't ever have to upgrade anything. And, and I think this is actually a big deal. It's not just a website. It's also a place you can buy the domain to host that website. That means that you can do it all at Squarespace. And if you ever get confused, which you won't, they've got 24-7 award-winning customer support waiting to help you. They have empowered millions of people, from designers to lawyers, artists to gamers, restaurants, gyms, whoever, to turn great ideas into something real. So go to squarespace.com slash longform for a free trial. This is another amazing part. You can go in there and start uh, tinkering around without actually uh, putting in a credit card. Then... Because you've had such great experience and you're ready to launch, you use the code LONGFORM and you get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Again, squarespace.com slash LONGFORM, offer code LONGFORM. Thank you, Squarespace. I mean, one of the questions I had was how, I mean, I know how you, Chris, know whether it's good. But how did you know whether it was good? Mm. I mean, you're, you Jeez. came up as a journalist. You know how to write 
a 10,000 word story, a 15,000 right. word story. Right. But did this feel, did it give you a different feeling? Did you sit with it and say, okay, this is at a place where I want to send it to him with any particular passage I or mean, the whole I, book? I have to tell you, I mean, I don't know what this says about me, but um, if he says it's good, it's good. I mean, I, that's, um, I, I think maybe more so than most writers, I am dependent on my editors. I tend to write, like my, I think my rough drafts are not very good, but on edit, I tend to be a lot better. I just, I lose the ability to see. And with something like this, that's so long. It's like, after a while, I just, I can't, like I'm going blind. Like the thing I think about is like when I, so I went, um, got off a tour for we eight years in power. It was a long tour and it ended in California. So I stayed in Venice for like seven weeks and I had not worked on this for a long time. I said, okay, I'm going to sit out here and I'm going to finish this book. And I did, and I felt great about it and excited. And I was going to get my, uh, what, do you, what do you call it? Uh, your own- uh, the Delivery and acceptance. Delivery and acceptance money. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was going to get my delivery and acceptance money. <laughs> so I was very excited. <laughs> so I sent him the dress. I said, man, this is it. You know what I mean? You're going to cut my check. And you know, you know. <laughs> and he had it for a while. And I don't think, it wasn't like, you know, someone like, sometimes the Chris is just like, yeah, no, no, this is not it. You know, and then he'll go through why. But he said, okay, let's sit down and talk about this. And we went through it. And he said, listen, I don't think it's ready. And I either had read it before or I had read it after that. I mean, I can't remember what the chronology was. But I remember going through it. And I guess it would have been after he said that and being like, this isn't it. Like, this really, really isn't it. But at the time, I thought it was. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? But it was only after hearing him say it that I, you know, and talk about it. And then I guess the other thing that Chris did, and this is like, you know, there are so many editors who are focused on acquisition and don't necessarily nurture the relationship. And so I sent him to, you know, we go through the draft and he says, listen, this is what you need to do. You need to read um, Secret History, Donatar. He said, you should read Donatar. Um, and then he said, why? He said, listen, this is, you know, basic, you know, story, you know, mystery. You should just see somebody who does this. And you should read Remains of the Day. You should read Remains of the Day because there's a whole servant thing going on here. And this guy has to communicate, you know, in a different kind of way. What that means, you should check this out. So I read that, and um, I read like one of the early books that really influenced this. Reread, you know, Doctor was Billy Bathgate, and then after reading those three, I was like, okay, I'm not even in this world. Like I'm not even close to this. Like I'm not even doing. It's not is this good or bad. It's like I'm not in the same place. And what I think about all the time, knowing you know, as in a non asshole way as possible, I can say this, knowing the prominence that I have, I think about how. An editor could just say, let's go. Let's go. It's you. You got the name. Let's go. You know what I mean? Because you see it happen. You know what I mean? You see it happen with other people all the time. You know, uh, with my name, they get to keep putting out bad books. And I don't know how good any particular book is, but I feel like if I'm excited and Chris is excited, that's about all I can ask. You know, maybe my wife being excited about it too. But that's, that's about, like, if I get those three, then okay. I mean, maybe it'll go wrong. Maybe it'll go right. But, you know, at least it was done with the best feeling, the best of intention. It wasn't just sort of thrown out there, you know, because of somebody's name or something. So what was missing? What was the essence of what you felt? This is not the book or there's something missing do here. Do you remember? I do. Okay. Um, what I think was missing was 
a sense that, you know, when you're in a book that you, I mean, when you really are being like sort of transported and immersed in a book, and particularly a book like this where there is a plot, like there's a, it's not just like beautiful language and a wonderful atmosphere that he creates, there's a plot, and that plot should feel like it's got real tension <laughs> and that it's really propelling you through there and it has a kind of propulsive quality to it. And I felt like it didn't have that engine that we felt like gunning and you didn't feel like you were getting like increasingly like momentum was gathering and that you were eventually going kind of downhill towards something you cared about. And although I thought the characters were great, I thought the setting was great. Although I thought the setting also needed another layer of detail, which, you know, Tanahasi after that spent so much more time doing research on the ground at plantations, like in the South, like getting that real physical detail right. I mean, really to a point where it was like we had to pull a little yeah, bit back. Kind of, he started cutting back. <laughs> because, <laughs> but it was so rich. Like, you know? like, I don't need to know what color the cabinet But it was this other layer of richness just in terms of the physical environment that I thought it needed to. And another thing is like, you know, this is, I think, a thing that happens a lot of times when you're transitioning from nonfiction to fiction is realizing how important it is to have the book really being a succession of scenes, you know, mm -hmm. without a lot of expository writing, yeah. without like stepping out with a lot of declarative sort of essayistic elements, but really to have like scene and then scene and then scene and the, so that the reader is really in it with you. And, and I think, you know, by the time we got to the last draft, and this is something that people who've read it have really responded to, that sense of being in that world is so powerful. And I think that's something that came with those last drafts. Yeah. I mean, it's even like, even after it was done, so we, we fought a lot about, not fought, but we went back and forth a lot about like the first chapter. And um, in the first chapter, there's this moment, guys drowning, something supernatural happens. And I think Chris's argument was that it should be shorter, like it should like most of what happens in that chapter should actually be further deeper into the book. And this should be like about a page and a half and it should end with the guy drowning. None of the supernatural stuff should be in there. And it actually ended up that the supernatural stuff is, and we were, I don't know where we were, maybe we were having coffee a couple of months ago or something. And I said to him, I said, why did you feel like it would have been better that way? And he said, listen, when somebody's stepping in to a book, there's so much that they don't know. And so I'm drowning there's a supernatural thing that's happening. I'm in the past. There's a lot of unknown things. You got to, you know, sort of ground me. And, you know, the book was done by then, but I was like, damn, I wish I could go back and shorten that chapter now. <laughs> <laughs> it's great, though. The first chapter is, is great. I mean, and now you got to sell it. So you got to sell it. It's too late now. <laughs> yeah, it's so we're past the editorial stage. <laughs> perfect. Well, let's talk a little bit about the supernatural part because I feel like there's a lot of different types of stories that are being interwoven here. I mean, there's a love story, mm -hmm. there's an upstairs, downstairs, mm -hmm. in the extreme mm -hmm. kind of thing happening. But there's also this sort of, I don't know if magical realism is the right way to describe it. The term mm -hmm. maybe is a bit fuzzy at this point, but there is a way you could have done this book where there was no supernatural in this book at all. Right. And I'm curious about that choice, especially coming from a journalist. You yeah. know, you deal in hard facts, you deal in real stories, and this could have been, it could have felt the same way. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, I was a huge comic book nerd when I was a kid. I mean, that really is the essence of it. You know what I mean? I, um, my roots as a writer are pretty trashy. You know what I mean? It's like comic books, hip-hop, Dungeons and Dragons, pulp stuff. It's, you know, that, that sort of stuff. We talked and, about Dungeons and Dragons the first time we met. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, you can see how much of an influence it's had. Um, so when I thought about this, like when I thought about like Hiram and his relationship with like Harriet Tubman, like I thought about like a Luke Skywalker 
Obi-Wan sort of thing, you know, going on. And I thought it would be really cool to do that in a book that um, was written in a milieu that doesn't really get magic. In fact, um, well, you know, with the obvious, with a couple obvious large exceptions, you know, thinking of Beloved, for instance. But in general, um, I mean, this goes back to the earlier thing, how you make it new, right? And one of the things I thought about was I wanted it to be exciting. Like, I really wanted it to be like an adventure story because, frankly, when I was doing a lot of my research, that's how the research felt. Like, it felt like, and by, by that, I mean, like, first-person narratives. Like, somebody narrating how I escaped, you know, out of Virginia or out of, you know, North Carolina or out of Maryland. I mean, it's like harrowing stuff. You know what I mean? It's like westerns or, you know what I mean, any sort of other adventure story. And yet, like, a lot of times I feel like the presentation of slavery is like, you know, eat your vegetables. And I, I want to do something really, really contrary to that. And I don't know if you get any more than, you know what I mean, bringing in magic. And it's a specific kind of magic. You, you know what I mean? Um, this is like a story of like an origin story for a hero. I hadn't seen that. I hadn't seen that. So I, I thought that would be new. But it, it does seem, I mean, it's a risk, it seems to me, because yeah. especially because you have a Harry Tubman figure yeah. in there. So you have a real person, right. you have a real story that's interwoven right. with the, right. the story and, and you're layering in right. magic. And that, that makes me curious if, do you feel like, Chris, your job is to push him to take risks, to restrain him when from When I told him about risks? the idea, he was so excited. It was the most exciting, like, and this is before, I don't think you have read anything. No. When I told him about, here's the concept of conduction. Like, he, that was the thing, like, he wasn't like, Wow, that's a really difficult. You're right. It is a risk. You're totally correct. You know what I mean? But that was the thing he actually responded the most to. I yeah, because I felt like it was magic. I mean, it was less of the, just sort of imposing magic onto a realistic story. It was more of finding, like, the symbolic language to tell that story. Like, to tell an almost impossible to tell story. <laughs> you know, like, if you tell it literally, you can't even capture the magic of it. Mm -hmm. And the thing that got me excited was the first time we talked about it, you also had, like, the Gutenberg version, the Gutenberg Project version of the <laughs> Records of the Underground Railroad by William Still, right. which were these collection of stories, first-person narratives and documents and things from the Underground Railroad. And you were relating some of those stories to me and how the stories themselves don't always make sense, right? Mm -hmm. like the stories of how people escaped don't always make literal sense. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't retrace these paths, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And people did things that seem impossible mm -hmm. in order to escape. And and so there, there is this question of like, well, how did they do it? How did Harriet Tubman yeah. right. do what she did and never get caught? Right. And, and to fill in that space with this magic that is not just like she waved a wand, but the magic that is drawn from the actual kind of magic of memory and storytelling, which mm -hmm. is like the source of the magic in the story, I thought was both, like you said, like exciting in a comic book way, but also got you to a deeper truth about mm -hmm. what that experience was. Mm -hmm. And how did you inhabit the voice? the first person voice was that do you feel like that was through embedding yourself in the research and <laughs> no, the recording I, just, I tried a lot <laughs> the first version of this which was the not very good version i tried to get chris to publish <laughs> it was like four different voices you know what i mean it was like four different voices in this plantation and um from four different characters from four different characters right. from four different characters and as bad as that was it was no practice you know what i mean so i, I probably had like i don't know like 30 40 thousand words of that like, that's like, you know what I mean? You're, you're a basketball player and you're trying to improve your jump shot. All of those were, you know, reps that, you know, I was getting in at trying to, you know, get to somebody. I just, I mean, I, I keep going back to this, but I've just been very fortunate in my critics because um, when I finally got to Hiram's story and I realized it was one voice, 
you know, I sent, you know, early versions of this to uh, Michael Shaban. He wrote this like just, you know, I mean, he was nice, but he was like, <laughs> this is not, this isn't fiction. And he's why is <laughs> everything you need to do. And I sent it to Chris and he was like, he's right. And, um, you know, you're really lucky to have somebody tell you something like that, you know. And so, honestly, I felt like the 10 years is mostly just trying over and over and over and over again. You know, I mean, I did the obvious thing and read, you know, a lot of um, firsthand, you know, first person sources from the mm -hmm. time. But that actually doesn't work. You know, what I mean, this is something we talked about a lot. Like what you're going for is not for similitude. Like so learning to write like people wrote back then is, is not quite enough. What you have to do is kind of learn how they wrote at that period of time and translate it, if that makes any sense, into today. So that might be like linguistic texts or ways of writing that feel like they're rooted in that, but they can't be of it. They can't be, you know what I mean, what the person would have said, you know, at that particular time because it just it doesn't necessarily work. I'm struggling to explain this. It's like somebody's very believable idea of how 19th century people talk. Right. Like something like that. But right. it's not exact. You know what I mean? Right. It's not. I mean, I mean, even with that, there were things we had to go through and look for um, anachronisms, like that sort of stuff. But um, I mean, down to like sentence structure. You know what I mean? These guys used to write these really superfluous, overdone sentences, but there was something really beautiful about it. And granted, I actually liked. So how do you do that? Not make it superfluous, but capture the thing that's in it that you really, you know, that, that really, really appeals to you, that, that gets you and translate it, you know, into a modern audience. So that, it took a long time to get that down. Well, I even wondered that about some of like the thinking, like the thinking that Hiram, some of his insights right. into what's really happening, right. they felt almost like, are they modern insights yeah. or are they his insights? Yeah, I mean, like I, the, I, I think the insights probably would have been made at that time. I don't know that they would have been said though. Because yeah. one of the things you realize is there's a different sense of privacy about certain th things in the 90s. They don't say everything. And I think a lot of what Hiram said, he wouldn't have said. I think a lot, I'm talking about like if it were real. Right. I think a lot about his relationship with Sophia, he just wouldn't have said. You know, a lot about Thena. I mean, it's just because people, like if you read narratives from that period, people actually come up short. You know, if you read somebody like Frederick Douglass, for instance, who almost never writes about his wife at all and will deploy his wife and his grandmother to the extent that he can make a statement about how horrible slavery is. But not in the sense that we think about it today. You know, I mean, in my, you know, just in the course of trying to understand. You know, I read uh, Grant's memoir, Ulysses Grant's memoir. It's a great book. I think he talks about his wife for like a paragraph. And they were married the whole time he was alive. I mean, it's not like they had a bad marriage or something, but it's just not, like that was sort of bracketed off. But I can't really bracket that off if I'm gonna write for you, you, you know what I mean? So I have to find some sort of way. I guess what you're looking for is to evoke almost like the voices of that era, but you can't literally do them. But you also see a lot of like what Hiram is thinking in his in, you know, sort of interior monologues and things, and even in the conversations they have about things like gender mm -hmm. and um, his kind of understanding of like the relationships uh, that he has in the book. You see that in you know, stories from the 19th century from slavery and some stories you've even recounted mm -hmm. to me in the actions of people, or mm -hmm. sometimes even in their letters, mm -hmm. you see how people felt about each other. Mm -hmm. you, know, you see in the, you know, the stories of what happened after emancipation, when people would walk a thousand miles to reconnect with a spouse or a child right. or someone who they've been separated from. And I think what happens in the book is you get to hear 
you know, what the thought process, which we don't get so much in the right. historical record, right. that would drive people to those <clears throat> kinds of acts, which seems so extraordinary, but they must have come from an extraordinary mm -hmm. kind of feeling and understanding of what those relationships were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the ones I think about most is like at the end of the Civil War is this guy serving in uh, one of the for one of the uh, United States colored troops, and they come into Richmond, and they're one of the first regiments that come in. And, you know, the enslaved people in Richmond are amazed to see black people, you know, in Union uniforms with guns, you know, coming in. And one of the guys goes in, this old woman comes up to him, and she asks him a series of questions. And basically, it's deduced this woman is his mother, who had been sold away from, you know, like, I don't know, some 20 years before. But it, <laughs> even though this story is clearly very emotional, the writer is very restrained. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I really missed you. I mean, not like that, but that's like the words, you know, choice. You know what I mean? And it's like things like that, like you have to sort of infer how much that must have really, really meant. You know what I mean? And then, you know, write that way. So the most cliched thing I could ask you is mm -hmm. like how much of you is in these characters. But mm. I could not help when I'm reading about Hiram as a collector of stories, mm -hmm. somebody who people give their stories to and he holds on to them yeah. and then he repurposes them. Right. It was hard not to think of <laughs> Shirley Sherrod right, or right. from the case for reparations, mm -hmm. the people in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested if you thought of it that way. Not consciously, but then I realized it and I felt bad. Why bad? Because I was like, this is weak, dude. You should have found something that was like, I, I guess in my mind, I wanted to find something that was further outside of myself. You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't intentional. Like, I wasn't thinking, oh, hey, I'm going to write, like, what it's like to be. But then I got to it, and it's, um, and I haven't, you know, studied enough, you know, read enough biography of novelists to know how far out of themselves they actually can get, ultimately. But, yeah, I mean, it's obvious. It's pretty close. And when I realized that, it was kind of disappointing. It was too late <laughs> by then, you know? Is that something you saw or, or yeah, pick up? Yeah, totally. I mean... Something I loved about the book is that it's a story about someone who is enslaved and finds liberation by telling stories and connecting with memory, right? And Tanahasi's work, I think, in terms of like it being like, you know, in some ways it's a work that uh, I think has freed him and has freed other people who've read it, you know, from certain ideas that they had about the past. And it's by going back to the past and kind of reclaiming and, you know, restoring like lost memory. And that's been what a lot of his work has been in nonfiction, and that ends up being like the superpower of the character. It, but I think that's what made it so real, you know, mm. and so powerful. Because I think ta really does believe it. You know, he does believe that memory and stories are the path to freedom, and because that's his whole life has been built on that premise. Yeah, that's true. That is that that is true. So I guess I mean the good thing is it did come from a true place, you know. So over the ten years that this. The novel has been developing. Meanwhile, you're writing for the Atlantic, then Case of Reparations, then we were eight years in power. So mm -hmm. you have this whole other life, which is the life, your chosen profession, right. and you have this on the side. And I'm curious if, if along the way, in any way started to feel, well, this fiction writing is, there would be so much pressure on it because your profile was getting so yeah, big that <laughs> yeah. people would say, he's a dilettante. No, we talked about that. We talked about that. I mean, I don't, um, one of the, the conversations between us was, um, this can't be okay. Like, this can't just be, you know, he wrote an okay book. Like, it has to be great. 
And that doesn't mean that it has to be received that way, although I hope it is. But between, like, we got to feel that way. Mm -hmm. Like, we got to feel that way. Like, it can't feel like, you know, oh, it seems like you should go write a novel. So, you know, you just went and wrote a novel. Like, it has to be a deeply felt thing. And no, we talked about it, you know, as if there weren't enough pressure. You know, you're right. Uh, because what I'll say is this. I, I, I take um, very seriously the trust I feel like readers have invested in me. You know, um, I've been lucky in terms of having a, a you know, a, a relatively, you know, wide audience. And I don't want to burn them. You know, it doesn't mean everybody has to like everything I do, but it does mean that they have to feel like I, this wasn't like a scam. It wasn't a hustle. It wasn't, you know, as you said, me being a dilettante. It wasn't, you know, let me just go, you know, do some fix. I need people to feel good. Even if you don't like where it ended up, you know what I mean? You, I need you to feel like I really was, you know, trying to kill myself to get this done, bleeding on the page. And look, sometimes you can do that and it can go wrong anyway. But that I felt like I could live with. Again, I, you know, I keep going back to this. As long as we could get to a place where, you know, we were really excited about the book, I felt pretty good. Last time we talked, it was post-Case for Reparations, and we mm -hmm. talked a lot about just the craziness that ensued from mm -hmm. that. But I feel like it got crazier after that. I mean, that was pre, like, <laughs> Cornell West situation. Like, there's five situations we could go into that, that happened since then. Right. And just to sort of summarize it, it's like your name and your work almost became like a weapon that people could wield, whether it's against you or yeah. against other people. Right. Or it right. just became a marker that you could, on whatever side of whatever issue. Yeah. So what is it like to have that be your off, like from your perspective? Hmm. Yeah, ask him. Don't ask me. No, ask him. Well, it's hard in a way because I know, like, I mean, I'm with him when he's sort of like writing these pieces sometimes. And, and I know that when he's writing them, he's writing them in total isolation. Like he's just like working with the information he has and thinking it through, and he articulates, you know, an argument sometimes in these incredibly powerful ways that people are attracted to, right? And there's something really kind of sincere and direct about that. And then you see it enter into this, like, machine, you know? And, and I think Twitter is a good sort of microcosm of the machine, you know, where it's like there's an initial reaction, which is usually very positive, then there's a counter-reaction to the initial reaction, then there's the reaction to the people who are reacting and a judgment of, you know, who they are to react to the thing. And being, you know, at that place where I can see it at its moment of creation and then to see it kind of go through this process where people, I don't even know what they're talking about. Are they talking about the thing itself? Are they talking about, like, are they using it as, a, as you said, a weapon to kind of, like, you know, ride whatever their kind of hobby horses, you know, or, you know, advance whatever their own agenda is. And I know that's what happens, you know, when you release something, a piece of, you know, a cultural product out into the world, like that's what happens. And so part of me is totally at peace with it. Part of me finds it really frustrating. Like I want to go out into the world with it and like explain it to people, you know, <laughs> rather than have, you know, people sort of attach their own odd ideas to it. But I do think that's the price of having that level of cultural influence. So I think it's easy for me to say because I'm not the one who gets attacked. But, um, but yeah. But do you have any temptation, knowing that it's coming now, to shape the work with that in your mind? To say, you know what, this part of this mm. novel even, mm. I can see how this mm. is going to land. Yeah, mm. well, I think this is the thing. Like, we, amidst the kind of noise, there's a little bit of signal, right? Which is like, there is good criticism. And I think there are useful alternative point of views. Even when they come with, like, rolling in on a pile of garbage, like, they're still there, you know? And worth, like 
thinking about and not to feel like, oh, everyone who like is critical is, you know, full of shit. Like, I don't think that's true. And again, easier for me to say, because I do have like the distance of being the editor of it. So, but, you know, like with The Water Dancer, I think I can say like one of the things that we thought a lot about was some of the criticism that came to, some of which was very unfair, I thought, but nevertheless, some of the criticism that came on his last book, on Between the World and Me, rather, about, you know, the way he, it was a book about a man and his son, and the women in the book were not, to some readers, didn't feel like the women were fully realized, or the women didn't have as much, uh, I guess, centrality or agency or something, I don't know. Like, there were certain criticisms about the way, you know, gender was handled in that book, some of which I thought were, you know, terrible criticisms, some of which I thought were worth giving some consideration to. And I think with this book, it did actually give us an extra incentive in some ways, not incentive, but it helped, I think, us really try to think through some of those issues and to bring in other readers early on who could help us think about those issues in the book. And luckily, you know, I have two editors that I work with, Nicole Counts and uh, Victory Matsui, who helped me, you know, go through and we met with ta to talk specifically about those things, among other things in the book. And you kind of, I mean, at least from a social media perspective, but also a little more generally, it felt like you disconnected at a certain point from that conversation. I'm not yeah. talking specifically about the conversation related to the, that criticism, but I mean in general. And first of all, why did you make that decision at that point? And second of all, does this feel like you're going to be re-engaging with that conversation? Hmm. I'm not supposed to be. <laughs> um, Stay on message. Yeah. No, it's tough, man, because... Um, I think like, you know, I mean, when we first started talking, my writing was in a place where it was not a particularly large audience. It was a decent audience, a readership. And some people liked it and some people didn't, but there was nothing really but the work. There wasn't a, a larger thing that was attached to it. I remember, for instance, like when Beautiful Struggle came out, right? First uh, book is launched at Human Books in Harlem. Maybe 15 people show up, 10 or 15 people, and like five of them are like family, you know? I was like, wow, this is tough. <laughs> and then um, the paperback came out, and we had this event in uh, Brooklyn, Barnes & Noble out in Brooklyn. And it might have been, what, 50 people there? Mm -hmm. And I was like, wow, 50 people. <laughs> like, it was all I, you know what I mean, could ever want. 50 people who would actually care what you have to say. I mean, I, it should never be forgotten how special that is. No matter what, you know, the crowd, that anybody cares what you have to say who does not know you, who actually is interested. And it just... I grew, you know what I mean? And then it became, and this is something I struggle with now, it became like almost unwieldy. And I think the hardest time I had, like dispositionally, and I don't want this to come out the wrong way because I wouldn't change anything, but dispositionally, I think I'm more suited to 50 people, like as a person, because I like talking to people. You know what I mean? I like, you know, having conversations about, you know, X, Y, and Z. You can't talk to anybody anymore. You just can't, there's, you know, you get to, at a certain point, you really, you do, Sometimes people like send me, you know, because I've been posting some of this stuff on Instagram, and they, sometimes people send me notes about things, and I just don't respond. And it like, like a part of me is like dying. Like not even necessarily something critical. You know, like I, I write comic books, and I'm writing Captain America right now. And Captain America went to the border in the last issue, and they were these, you know, ripped from the headlines. Uh, these undocumented workers who were being, you know, trafficked in, into slavery, and he went down to, you know, help out. But he has this dilemma of conscience, because they aren't strictly legal and da 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 and he has this argument with this other character and he's ultimately convinced to do the right thing. Somebody wrote me a letter 
uh, a note on Instagram. Just send a note on Instagram. He said, listen, I love Captain America. I'm an undocumented you know, immigrant. Captain America has always been a hero to me, symbol of what America could be. It should not be the situation that he has to be talked into this. So I want to write back, right? Because it's a very interesting note. I want to write back and say, well, you know, he's a character. He should have to struggle. It's more interesting when people have to struggle. You know, if he's just a symbol, he can't actually be, you know, a person. But I just can't. Like, Why? I, I don't know. I feel like somewhere in I lost the freedom to have conversations with people. I mean, is that person going to screenshot it and then put it on that Instagram, for instance? You know what I mean? Are they going to screenshot it and tweet it out? Are they going to say, like, I don't, like, whereas before it was like, it wasn't that important enough for anybody. Like, somebody would have done that and been like, who is that? <laughs> you, you know what I mean? And so um, there is a, a public persona that now exists that feels very distant from who I actually am. That is tough to adjust to. That's a champagne problem. But it's a problem nonetheless. And so, I mean, even, you know, you know, when, when stuff would happen and, you know, as you said, things would get weaponized. You know, first person I talked to was Chris. And probably, you know, more than anybody, but, you know, along a couple of my friends, you know, the general position has been you can't really respond. You can't actually engage us at all. Like, you, you can't. And that just feels so counter to who I am. You I know? mean, there's another... The other way advice could go would be you got to get out there and fight for yourself. I could see mm. an, an editor doing that for nothing more than commercial reasons. Mm. <laughs> why don't you? Why is no, no seriousness? Why is that not right. your advice? Why is it not right. your advice? Well, there are times when I've it? said you should say something. Yeah, like, like, twice. The most part, like twice. <laughs> twice. I would say for the most part, it's it doesn't matter what you say. You know, like right. people are there. Are right. Too many people who have like fixed agendas and are basically don't even care about you or what you have to say anyway. What they care about is what they have to say. And if you're out there, you just become something from the stand on to like get more visibility for the thing they have to say. It's not a good faith conversation a lot of the times. And so that's why I think it's sometimes a bad idea. But don't you feel like if that. the person doesn't respond, then the only, you know, version out there is the criticism? Mm-hmm. Even mm -hmm. if it's unfair? Yeah, I think selectively there are times to respond. I think if you feel like that's, like if it's just a cacophony of noise, I think throwing yourself into the middle of a cacophony of noise is not smart. Yeah, I don't know. I think there are probably times when it does make sense to respond, but respond in like a thoughtful mm. way. And so it doesn't just become more grist for, you know, this kind of horrible machine. Yeah. I mean, there's a kind of writer, public intellectual, who thrives on that. Who I know. And that, that gets and you know fuel what? from see, that. Now you're making his argument, though. Because that's not who you are. You do not thrive in, right. like... I would be unhappy. Like, I would do that, and I would be initially happy. Like, I'd be thrilled to, you know, I had a knives out and do it, but then it would, like, it would be miserable after a while. And I, and I think, like, implicitly, if Chris has never said this, is that all of those feelings that you have, all of that, that's for the work. Like, that's not... So, I mean, every, like, this book, it comes from somewhere. You know what I mean? Some, me thinking something, me feeling something emotionally. And probably what I feel right now in terms of, like, like let's say what I just said about, you know, being more dispositionally suited for somebody, you know, when it's 50 people, that probably is the genesis of something that I haven't worked out yet. You know? Like, um, that probably is work. That's probably not something that, I need to be tweeting out or I need to be acting on or I need to be in the spirit of, you know, it's probably a thing that I need to sit with. I mean, you know, one thing I have, you know, at this point, you know, with this being the fourth book, one thing I have noticed is 
almost every book, there's a proper beginning, which is to say, this is when I started writing. Mm. But that's not the actual beginning. Like, I can almost always date back, you know what I mean, the emotion. You know, um, Between the World and Me didn't get published till 2015, but my buddy Prince was killed in 2000. And I had been thinking about it all the time before, I, you know, I wrote it. And I wonder, with me, whether that's the way it's supposed to be. You know, like I need to, to process it. I need to process it in private, you know, and then try to make some sort of work out of it. In that vein, this subject matter, like trying to get the voice of mm -hmm. people operating inside of slavery mm -hmm. on both sides, mm -hmm. the tasked and the quality mm -hmm. as they're called in the book. I mean, that's as something to sit with for and process for 10 years. I'm wondering how that felt for both of you since it's been an ongoing back and forth to try to inhabit that for that long. It's a very painful place to be, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, I felt sometimes it was, it was really bad when you were reading about people's kids, you know, like people losing their kids. I mean, that, that just, um, you know, uh, there's this ladder, well, a couple ladders, but one that I think about is this, uh, a woman after slavery after abolition is writing a man who she was separated from. You know, clearly somebody was sold. I'm not sure if it was her or him. But we don't have her letter. We only have his response. And, I mean, he's remarried. You know what I mean? They had kids together, but they've, like, been apart, you know, forever. He has a whole other family. And he basically just writes her back and he says, listen, um, I love you, but this could never be, you know. And the only thing I would wish for you right now is for you to find a good husband. And he ends the letter. He's like, you know, please send me a lock of the kid's hair. And you eat something like that, and it's like, ugh. You know? And there are just tons and tons of just, you know, letters, you know, like that. There's a guy whose name I'm – oh, Dangerfield Newby. And Dangerfield Newby, um, he had been enslaved, but he'd been free, but he was married to this enslaved woman. And a woman keeps writing him over and over again. And she's saying, you have to get the money to buy us out of slavery because we're going to get sold. And, you know, it's clear, we don't have his letters, but it's clear he's writing up back, you know, saying, you know, from her responses, I got this, I got that. Master keeps changing the price. He can't get it. She's like, listen, this, this is it. We only know this happened because we found her letters to Dangerfield Newbie on his body. And where we found his body was in Harper's Ferry with John Brown. And so it just became so painful to him. It's so clear that there was no fair way out that, you know what I mean, he went on, you know, this mission with John Brown. You read stuff like that, and it just, it, it has effects. But you have to go there. I mean, if you can't go there, then you can't, you know, really do the thing. So, yeah, it was <laughs> not fun a lot of times. Yeah. I mean, the great thing about it, though, is, and this is something that ta like, I think when he first started working on the project, you know, he talked about, like, this kind of understanding American history as this almost, like, ongoing, like, hundreds-year-long war. Right. And the thing that's so wonderful about being in that moment in history is that you see exactly how painful it was mm. and how difficult it was and how much struggle there was and how emotionally wrenching it was and terrifying it was. And yet those people continued to not just like accommodate the system, but to fight the system, to rebel against the system and to keep and eventually articulate a vision of freedom that is the only authentic vision of freedom in American history. Mm. And that's the thing that is so, I don't know, kind of enlivening about being in mm. that world. 
mm-hmm. is you're people who are right there with everything at stake all the time, who fought for like the highest values mm-hmm. and the people they loved the most. Mm-hmm. And to me, like it's a distillation of like the most, I don't know, like powerful emotions mm-hmm. in a story. So speaking of American history, I cannot let you go without asking about testifying in front of the United <laughs> States Congress, because, you know, we've talked a lot about solutionism in journalism and mm. that you were mm. never about that. Mm-hmm. And you've said to me, you know, <laughs> the writer hopes for change, but the writer can't right. expect change. Right, right, right. And yet, um, <laughs> I'm not saying it's change, but right. to see the evolution from your early pieces to right. then writing case reparations right. to then actually sitting in front of the U.S. Congress and testifying about right. H.R. 40. Right. I'm curious what that does yeah. to your disposition. I'm, you know, about that's, that's a great question because um, I felt like I kind of didn't want to do it. You know what I mean? Because again, like I, I you know, I just, we had this conversation. Like I strongly identify as a writer, and my job is not to, you know. I mean, it's like one of those tough things, though, because. At the very same time, having the luxury of being a writer, in my case, to sit back and, you know, dispense whatever I've learned or seen about something is actually built on other people's struggle. And so it's not as independent as I imagined. And so I felt like I had some sort of responsibility to go. Ultimately, I came to, I didn't feel like that, but ultimately I came to that after a lot of, you know, thinking about it and talking about it. I think what it showed to me that there even was a hearing and I, you know, I just want to be clear, not, you know, saying it was, you know, just me, but I think the one clear thing about the case for reparations is, and I, I knew this at the time, like it couldn't be an 800 word column saying reparations is a good idea, reparations is a great idea. But you start giving people stories, you know what I mean? Like you start saying, this guy right here, still alive, Clyde Ross, living here, this is everything that was taken from him, here's how it was done. See that, now people are faced with human beings. Now it's not, you know, some abstract dorm room debate. You know, it's not, this is not mock trial. There's no, the dude is right there. You know what I mean? He'll tell you, you know, from his own lips, it actually happened. And that, you know what I mean? That really gets to you. I think like um, journalists and writers, maybe not, you know, journalists like yourself, Evan, and maybe not long form, you know, journalists in general, but I think maybe daily journalists, uh, writers, those are us who, as you say, live firmly in a world of facts, sometimes lose sight of how important like the heart actually is. I mean, again, you, you must know this implicitly, but there's something about narrative that does something more than just here are the facts. You know, I could, you know, give you the sociological facts up one side, down the other, done it, you know, about, you know, black America. I can even tell you a broad history, but when I start boiling it down to an actual person, People really, they, it just hits them in a different kind of way, you know? And I don't think anything, you know, that I've written, you know, surprised me more than a way that, because you're talking about a, a really, at that time, a really, really like far, far, you know, way beyond the Overton window. You know what I mean? Idea. And, you know, to take something that initially sounds crazy you know what I mean? And through narrative, you know, say, no, no, I'm going to tell you why this actually is not crazy at all. It's actually quite sensible. I don't think it works without the characters and without story. And so for me, you know, it, it just, it was evidence of the power. So, so much so that, you know, often like even, you know, Chris 
and I, we talk about other stories, and I think a lot of times a hang-up for why they don't happen is, I don't know that this works just as a straight essay. I don't think it works unless I can, you know, pin a story to it, you know? Because you don't want people to just say, oh, that was a cool argument. You don't want people to say, even people who like it, I agree with that. You know what I mean? You want them to say, I could not stop thinking about this. And you want them to, like, nudge their wives and their husbands and say, you have to read this. And their friends, have you read? You know what I mean? You want them to be, like, bothered by it. And so if that, you know, story had any success, I think, you know, it bothered quite a few people, you know? So then what are your hopes for this story? So now you've gone further. Wow, that's a great question. So what are your hopes that a reader would take away from Well, from I, first of all, I hope that they're readers. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's I mean, just let's take see, it as a given that someone will it, read this oof, book. That's a, that's a big given. I mean, because, you know, it's like first novel, right? Like it, it still feels sort of abstract. Um, I actually don't know. I don't I hope people read it. I really, really hope people read it. I, I really hope, hope that like... Um, what we feel and what some of the other people in this room feel turns out to be correct. And that is that, you know, this is a really, you know, interesting story that people will want to spend some time with. Maybe afterwards I'll be able to process this. It is what I really wanted, you know. But right now I just, I really hope it gets read. Chris? I also hope it gets read. <laughs> just check it. Um, for sure. I think there's a lot that I think people will take from this. I mean, I think there's a lot of resonances with so many things that we're thinking about and talking about today, from like family separation yeah, to right. questions about like historical legacy in this country. And, and I do think there's a lot that will provoke readers, and I think a lot that will mm. bother them. I think slavery is a classic example of a time when storytelling actually, you could say, you know, shifted the tide of American history and some of the people who, you know, you write about in this book were the people who told those stories. And I think that this is kind of carrying through a little bit of that legacy. And I think there are things in it that people will see in the world we're in today and hopefully, you know, will make them think more deeply about how we treat each other. Evan, just one last thing, just because this circles back to you know, what you were saying in terms of expectations. Chris was making the point about criticism earlier and trying to find a kernel of truth in there and then extracting you know, whatever, as you go forward. But one thing I think is really important is that you don't do it out of the expectation that people won't say what they're going to say. Like, you really have to take possession of it and do the criticism for yourself and not in the notion of heading anything off. Right. Because you're not going to head it off. You know what I mean? Um, you can make a better story yourself, but what the reaction is going to be is going to be what the reaction is going to be. All right, well, thank you both for taking out this time. And uh, I, I have a feeling that people are going to read it. <laughs> all right. Thanks. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you all. Thanks, guys. That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I'm your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks to Ta-Nehisi for coming on again and to Chris Jackson for joining us for that conversation. Uh, special thanks to all the Random House folks that made that possible. To my co-host and sound engineer, Aaron Lammer. Uh, my other co-host, Max Linsky. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern, Louisa Garbowit. And as always, our sponsors, MailChimp and Pit Writers. We'll see you next week.
Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, <laughs> but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.